0: Rabbi Leo Beck was a leader among German Jews during the Nazi era. He wrote the following regarding Jesus: We behold a man who is Jewish in every feature and trait of his character, manifesting in every particular what is pure and good in Judaism. This man Could have developed as he came to be only on the soil of Judaism, and only on this soil too, could he find disciples and followers as they were. Here alone, in this Jewish sphere, in this Jewish atmosphere, could this man live his life and meet his death, a Jew among Jews. Hi, my name is Doug Hooley, and you're listening to the Called Out Cafe podcast, this is episode number 21 in the series titled, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. The series is based on the last book I wrote, which bears the same title. And today, we're going to be talking about the earliest of the ecclesias. That means we're going to be talking about Jewish Christians. After the miraculous event of the coming of the Holy Spirit took place in the upper room on Pentecost, Luke tells us that there were many devout men living, even if temporarily, in Jerusalem. With a few possible exceptions, such as God-fearers mixed in, these pilgrims that were present for Pentecost were likely all Jews. Scripture indicates that there were also Jewish converts that were present. The disciples of Jesus who found themselves in the upper room that day believed that they were living in the last days that were foretold of in the Old Testament. They were all Jews who believed that Jesus was crucified, rose from the dead, and was the long-awaited Messiah, and that he was currently seated at the right hand of God. Several of these believers had witnessed him being taken up into the sky. Just a few days earlier. Well, when Peter and the others left the upper room and confronted the curious crowds that had gathered outside, they who they'd heard this ruckus right going on in the upper room, and so, so they started gathering from all over the city. Though almost all were Jews, they were far from all being on the same page about how they practiced their Judaism, their religion. During the second temple period, those Jews, this is from like circa 539 BC to 70 AD, they all had very diverse beliefs, even though they were all Jews, right? So it was a time of transition for the Jews. They were moving from a consolidated Levitical priesthood-based religion to a decentralized, multifactionalized religion. Hebrew priests were all descended from the same tribe as Aaron, the brother of Moses. Moses and Aaron were both descendants of the tribe of Levi. Many priests were a part of the aristocratic Sadducees sect. The Sadducees held the ear of the upper class and royalty in Israel. Sadducees recognized only the written Torah and rejected oral traditions and the prophets and writings. So, just the first part of what we call the Old Testament. So, rabbis were the wisest teachers among the wise. They came mainly from the Pharisaical sect. Pharisees were learned men, educated. They devoted themselves to keeping the Torah rather than catering to the aristocracy they were in touch with the middle and the lower classes of jews rather than the upper class well besides jerusalem the pharisees lived throughout the regions of judea and galilee josephus you know the first century historian he numbers the pharisees at around 6000 by the time the second temple fell in 70 ad after 70 ad pharisaism transitioned into rabbinic judaism and became the primary form of Judaism. But again, this is, you know, like 40 years after Jesus, 37 years after Jesus, when uh, rabbinic Judaism became the primary form of Judaism. Education was especially important among the Jews. In some circles, elementary education was considered compulsory as early as 75 BCE. Males attended schools or were privately tutored in their mid-teens. Their education centered around the study of the Torah and the Talmud. I don't want to get off track here, but I recently learned that, uh, and maybe I learned it a long time ago and I forgot, I don't know, but uh, I was recently reminded, I'll put it that way, that young kids that attend Hebrew school, even today, by the time they're 10 years old, will mostly, most of them, will have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament. That is nutty. And then there are these writings called the Mishnah, which are essentially documentation of oral traditions from the first few hundred years after Jesus. It's called the Rabbinical Period. And those writings fill up six really thick (laughs) volumes. So a mass amount of information. It's all of their teaching on like divorce and the Messiah, so many different things. Uh, Very detailed teaching. Anyway, another high percentage of these devout (laughs) young Jews will memorize all six volumes of the Mishnah. So the first five books of the Bible, I mean, including Leviticus (laughs) <laughs> give me a break. And uh, the entire Mishnah. That is some dedication and uh, man, something to be so proud of if you're uh, one of them that accomplishes that. But just remember that if you if you ever find yourself in a discussion uh, with a uh, an Orthodox or traditional Jew who has went to Hebrew school, um they have some serious learning behind them anyway I'm I'm getting off track there so back in the day back in the you know in Jesus's day males attended schools or were privately tutored in their mid-teens like up into their mid-teens and their education centered around the study of the Torah and Talmud, the first five books of the Bible, uh, the Mosaic writings and the sum total, the Talmud, uh, um, of the teachings. There was a very high literacy rate among first century Jews. It's startling when compared to the estimated only 20% literacy rate in the surrounding Gentile Roman world. Synagogues began to meet during the Babylonian exile when the Jews had no temple nor any other centralized place to worship. The word synagogue means an assembly. It did not originally mean what we think of today as a Jewish place of worship. Later, the word came to mean house of study. So, this Mishnah, the Jewish oral traditions written down around 200 AD, specifies that it takes a gathering of 10, specifically men, to constitute the required quorum for communal worship. Synagogues eventually took on the form of buildings and were found throughout the countryside in Israel. Rabbis taught at the synagogues. Although students were loyal to rabbis and honored and respected them, rabbis were not paid. Rabbis were expected to earn their own living. Now, some did earn a living by teaching others, but not for being the guy that stands up front on Saturday mornings in their case. Temple priests and rabbis were not the same thing. They did not always agree. As different schools of Pharisees existed, one rabbi did not necessarily agree with other rabbis. For example, in the first century BC, two different rival schools existed, two main schools existed. One very liberal by Hillel, and another one by an ultra-conservative guy named Shammai. Some see different questions in the Gospels asked of Jesus designed to pit those two different schools against each other. And although I haven't independently verified this, some see Jesus generally answering in agreement with the school of Hillel. That's not to say that he was a student of Hillel. Only that he may have agreed with him on the issues that he was questioned about in the Gospels. Maybe a few more uh, answers were on the side of Hillel than Shammai. Anyway, although most all Jews believed there was only one God, and he spoke through his prophets, each sect of Jews held beliefs that differed as to the proper understanding of who Yahweh was and is, and how he operates and what he expected of his people. Zadokite and Enochic Judaism, Samaritans, Hellenistic, the Essenes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Zealots, the Zechariah, and all the subsects within them, all held different beliefs. Josephus, again the first century historian, put the various sects into four different groups, Pharisees, Sadducees, Essenes, and Zealots. But however you divided them up, they all had to make room for what became known as the Nazarene sect of Judaism, those Jews who embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Israel was living under the heavy hand of the Roman government. They looked forward to a time when they no longer would be. Self-rule was an expectation that many tied to the idea of a Messiah, some believed the Messiah would come amidst calamity and disastrous events in which God Himself would miraculously intervene to save Israel. Some Jews supported the Herodian rule over them, you know, King Herod. Others didn't. Many Jews believed that God was the only authority over Israel and that allowing any political figure to rule was equal to paganism. Religious zealots Hope to capitalize on this belief to bring about a religious revolt. And this eventually happened as a result in the uh, destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and the exile of Jewish leaders in 70 AD. Well, we're told in the book of Acts that around 3,000 souls gladly received the gospel message in Jerusalem and were baptized in a single day, the day of Pentecost. These 3,000 souls. All received the gospel, this is so important to get, into, uh, even though they they were most likely all Jews, into diverse religious contexts. These distinct yet very Jewish frameworks that the gospel was being fitted into, for the most part, all remained in place until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. As the shock of the Pentecost event, you know, the tongues of fire and the speaking of different languages and uh, all sorts of stuff like that, right? As the shock of that event subsided and gave way to routine day-to-day lives of these devout yet diverse Jews, at least initially, it changed a little because of their new belief in Jesus. What's not said in scripture speaks very loudly. The apostles did not tell anyone to give up being a Jew. They did not tell them to cease sacrificing, giving alms, paying the temple tax, doing their daily prayers, attending the Jewish synagogues, doing what the priests said, keeping the Sabbath, or participating in the annual festivals. No apostle ever said that God had given up on the Jewish people and it was time to move on. You know, to like plan B. No apostle taught that God was going with this plan B and reneging on his old covenant promises. The early Jewish believers in Yeshua, Amashiah, Jesus, the anointed one or Messiah, per the gospel, believed that it was only through real God-given belief in Jesus that one could gain eternal life and be saved from damnation. However, they also had no reason to believe that keeping the law had suddenly become a bad or outdated thing. They could not help being Jews. They were born Jews. They were ethnically Jews, a people chosen by God to be His. They were holy and different from amongst all the other nations of the world. Keeping the law dressing, acting, and eating differently had always been a part of this peculiarity. All of those things remained despite believing in Jesus and gaining eternal life. Hear me loud here. It did not remain for the Gentiles because the Gentiles were never that way. And it was not to be imposed on the Gentiles. That's where a lot of misunderstanding in the first century took place. But these things remained for the Jews. So Israel as a nation and as ethnic people will always be special to God. They have always had a unique role to play, and they always will. The Old Testament prophets wrote of a time, still in our future, in which the Messiah, Jesus, will rule over the twelve tribes of Israel. His current kingdom, which is not of this world, but still in heaven, just like the Lord's Prayer asks for, will one day come to this earth. The New Testament speaks of the body of Christ, the ecclesia, and Israel is having two distinct roles in the future. Both groups together will make up the total people of God, the pleroma of God, but they exist with two different parts to play. Replacement theology comes in many forms in the church. Contrary to what those who accept replacement theology may say, Israel was never replaced by the church. Replacement theology has been around about as long as the church has been around. To sum up replacement theology, the doctrine says that since Israel did not recognize Jesus as the Messiah, and in fact is responsible for his death, that God divorced or set aside Israel and replaced it with the church. The fact that the temple was destroyed and the Jews were driven from Israel confirms this, That uh, those that believe in that say. The church now, according to them, is subject to all that was promised to Israel in the Old Testament. But unless God's a liar, Israel will always have a critical role to play in the story that he's telling. Unless God can't keep his unconditional promises, there's got to still be a time in the future when his promises through Old and New Testament prophecies must be fulfilled regarding the nation of Israel. Everything that's happened to Israel, including the Diaspora and coming back together as a nation in 1948, was predicted in the Bible. One's never going to understand the New Testament unless they understand the two unique roles of the ecclesia and Israel. As Paul explains in Romans chapter 11, the two are different yet intertwined. Jesus is at the center of both storylines. As a Jew, if Jesus is their Lord, like they're a Messianic Jew, they are part of both storylines. Well, beyond hearing the gospel message miraculously in their own languages, those who remained in Jerusalem after the day of Pentecost witnessed signs and wonders at the hands of the apostles, which served to further credential the apostles as being authorized by Jesus to speak on his behalf. The apostles... Uh, informed us or reminded people about the life of Jesus and the miracles that he performed. As they were all very recent events back then, of course, many of them may have already heard or even been an eyewitness to them, and at least part of what the apostles were talking about. The apostles chiefly presented the gospel to their audience by using the Tanakh, the Hebrew Bible, or what we know now as the Old Testament. They were speaking to those who were monotheists and already believed in Jehovah or Yahweh. They were people steeped in the Old Testament stories and prophecies. But they were people who had been influenced by diverse teachings about those stories and prophecies coming from many different sects within Judaism. The earliest members of the ecclesia continued in their Jewishness. After Pentecost, they had the understanding that Jesus was the fulfillment of what their scriptures said about the Messiah. They may have been more zealous to please God than ever, believing that the Messiah was ready to establish His new kingdom on earth, right there and then. Based on the teaching of the apostles and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, authentic followers of Jesus now correctly understood the spirit behind the law that they had been following. They understood that their eternal status was based solely on belief in their Messiah, Jesus, and who He said He was, the Son of God, and their Messiah and Savior. They no longer believed their salvation was based on keeping the law. And finally, the apostles taught them that based on Jesus' own words, salvation was not only for the Jews. Rather, the Gentiles could believe in Jesus and also be saved. However, many of them believed that to do so, that Gentiles needed to convert to Judaism and follow the law. Those who were Jewish before Pentecost were still Jewish after Pentecost. I think I've said that two or three or four times now. Well, the difference now was that those who had received the message of the apostles had become, quote, in the Messiah, unquote, or in Christos. This was the proto-ecclesia, the primal ecclesia, the first ecclesia. The Jewish ecclesia, at least at first, continued to keep the Sabbath. Unless persecution of their new sect of Judaism kept them away, they may have continued to make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year and keep all the other religious festivals. Perhaps some continued to take off work the two months before the religious festivals, as was their habit, to study the Torah. Also, as was the practice of most Jews living outside of Jerusalem since the Babylonian exile, they continued to meet in the synagogues where they studied the scriptures. But now they studied in the light of what Jesus had said and done. And with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which they had not had before, the Torah must have seemed to have sprung to life for these new followers of the Messiah. The first members of Jesus' ecclesia were not even technically converts to Christianity. Let's say that again. The first members of the ecclesia were not even converts to Christianity. They were simply enlightened, right-believing Jews who had accepted the Messiah that their scriptures had spoken of. They recognized and accepted Jesus as this Messiah where other Jews had not. Certainly, their contemporaries did not look at them as having converted to another different religion altogether. At first, they just looked at them as having joined a new sect within Judaism. Those who had recognized Jesus as the Messiah and had chosen to follow him were the ones who were correctly applying the Old Testament to their lives. It was the natural progression of the true Judaism that the Old Testament spoke of. They were following Jesus, who came to fulfill the law they themselves attempted to follow all their lives. At least at first, the Jewish ecclesia may have continued to take their sacrifice to the temple. As their knowledge and understanding of what it is that Jesus did was better understood, which was atoning for their sins through his death, and sacrifices then ceased. If they chose to continue to take sacrifices to the temple, it was for a different reason. Like, their obedience to the law and sacrifices only commemorated what Jesus had done for them all. All sacrifices at the temple ceased, by 70 AD when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed by Roman general Titus. It's likely that the apostles themselves continued to take sacrifices to the temple. It was a primary purpose of the temple, and the apostles continued to go there regularly. In Acts chapter 21 verse 23 to 26, we read the story of Paul, Jesus' champion of grace taking four other men to the temple to make an offering after completing a vow. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Paul himself tells us that to the Jews, I become as a Jew, to those under the law, as under the law, to those without the law, as without the law. So why did he do that? So that he might gain them all for Christ. We know Paul was officially considered a Jew by the Roman government, at least until AD 51, approximately 15 or 16 years after his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. So, in other words, Paul didn't convert to Christianity either. Paul just had the right understanding of Judaism and the Messiah. He placed Jesus within Judaism as an extension of uh, what the scriptures said, as a fulfillment of those scriptures. Jesus was the fulfillment, as the uh, As the Messiah. The first Jews, who recognized Jesus as their Messiah after Pentecost, still looked forward to the next Passover. However, they celebrated it not only because of their historic escape from the Pharaoh in Egypt, but more importantly now, they celebrated what Jesus had recently accomplished as their Messiah and Savior. He didn't deliver them from Egypt. He delivered them into eternal life, from eternal damnation. When they shared the Passover meal together after Pentecost, rather than only remembering Israel's miraculous deliverance from Egypt, they now remembered the miracle of the death and resurrection of their Savior, Jesus. Jesus had become the final Passover lamb, necessary to atone for anyone who would accept it. By this time in history, The Passover had been celebrated for about 1,500 years, give or take. The Passover meal was complex and packed full of tradition and meaning. Every Jew knew the customs associated with the meal extremely well. It was something that had taken place every year of their lives from as far back as they could remember. Everyone knew what to expect and the part that they played in the meal. Mothers, fathers, and children all had their individual roles. Prayers to recite, questions that were to be asked, and answers that were to be given. Specific foods prepared in certain ways, eaten in an exact order. During the Passover meal, dipping unleavened bread, or matzah, in bitter herbs was meant to bring tears to the participants' eyes, so they could identify with their ancestors who were slaves in Egypt. As followers of Jesus now did this during the Passover, they remembered that the apostles had explained to them that during the last Passover meal Jesus ate, he indicated to John who would betray him. Jesus indicated this by giving a piece of this tear-creating dipped matzah To the disciple that would betray him, Uh, Judas, of course, was the recipient of that matzah that Jesus dipped in the bitter herb and then gave to Judas. Uh, When it came time during the Passover meal to break off and share the matzah as per tradition, the earliest followers of Jesus also remembered what they were taught by the apostles about that, that the bread, the matzah, now had a new meaning. Jesus informed his disciples that it represents his broken body. The bread was unleavened. Leaven during the Passover represented sin. Mothers and children put a great deal of effort into ridding their homes of any kind of leaven prior to the Passover. It's no coincidence that the unleavened bread represents Jesus' sinless body. Then, when it came time to drink the third cup of wine during the meal called the cup of redemption. The earliest Christians were taught that this cup now represented the blood that Jesus shed on the cross. How appropriate of a title for the cup of wine that represented the redemption that Jesus' blood brought about. Jesus told his disciples that from now on, from that point in time of his last Passover meal with them, whenever they ate the Passover meal, When they break and eat the unleavened bread or drink this cup, they are to do it in remembrance of Him. No more did it only represent the Hebrews' flight from Egypt. Jesus was changing this 1,500-year-old tradition and giving new meaning into this ancient ceremony. As the early called-out continued the Passover meal, They recalled that it was the fourth cup of wine that's drank during the meal called the cup of acceptance or praise that was likely the cup Jesus was referring to when he said that he will not drink from, quote, the fruit of the vine, unquote, again until he does so with his disciples in his father's kingdom. Finally, the Passover meal concluded with a hymn. It was either sung or recited. This was the case with Jesus and his disciples also during the Last Supper. They shared that Last Supper, the last Passover meal together about 50 days before the day of Pentecost. All the early Jewish Christians knew this hymn or this song well, which was the latter half of the Hallel, a Jewish prayer based on Psalms 113 to 118. How significant this hymn must have been to them when they came to the line which was fulfilled by Jesus, which said, The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The Passover meal for followers of Jesus during the first century and now contains so much deep meaning pertaining to what Jesus, the Messiah, accomplished on the cross. What a tragedy that the annual tradition has been reduced to a token ritualistic religious ceremony that few followers of Jesus today really fully understand. There's no indication in Scripture that it had been turned into a routine ritualistic meal which took on the title of the Lord's Supper up until the time that the gospel had spread to the Gentiles. The rest of the holidays that the Jewish disciples of Jesus continued to celebrate Also had great new meaning. It's no coincidence that the first Jewish Messiah followers came to believe on the day of Pentecost, or what they call Shavuot. According to Jewish tradition, it's on Shavuot that Moses miraculously received the law from God on Mount Sinai. Jewish tradition also says that King David was born and died on Shavuot. One of the traditions accompanying Shavuot is that the Ten Commandments are read in honor of their being given on that day. Another tradition is the studying of the law, or the Torah. Just before his ascension into heaven, Jesus instructed his apostles to, number one, proclaim his good news to all the nations, and number two, teach them all that he said, and number three, baptize them according to Luke in the book of Acts, the devout Jews that the apostles presented the gospel to on that day of Pentecost were from every nation under heaven. They heard the gospel miraculously in their own native language. As a result, more than 3,000 souls became believers and were baptized that day. This was followed by being taught by the apostles who walked with Jesus. These new Jesus believers were instructed in the things that Jesus taught his disciples. Bam! (laughs) Just like that, less than 10 days after receiving their instructions from Jesus, the disciples fulfilled their directions from him to deliver the gospel to all nations, teaching them all things they had been taught and baptizing them like I say, bam. Surely those who came from every nation under heaven, that's a quote, and believed carried the gospel message back home with them and, in turn, taught it to others. What a tremendous fulfillment of the first fruits, holy day. The first fruits of Jesus' kingdom were harvested. Well, the next course Of stones for the house Jesus's building had been quarried by the Holy Spirit the disciples being the bottom course and the next course being like these 3,000 that came to believe in Jesus all the Apostles had to do was show up to work that day (laughs) the Holy Spirit did the rest Jesus planted the seeds of the gospel of the kingdom while he was on earth and the Holy Spirit of God harvested that crop. He used the apostles as harvesters that day. Rather than the external law being given that day, like it was on Mount Sinai, the Holy Spirit was given. He testified internally to those who were called by God to salvation. The early Jewish Jesus believers now had Two things to celebrate during future Pentecost. Number one, the giving of the law. And secondly, and more importantly, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, what about some of the other Jewish holidays? On the day of Pentecost, Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, started off his explanation of the gospel and the miraculous event that was taking place that day by tying it to the, quote, last days, unquote. He did so by quoting the prophet Joel. You can read that in what Peter said in Acts chapter 2, verses 17-21. to 21. A short time later, Peter and John went up together to the temple. After healing a man who had been lame since birth and attracting the attention of the crowd, <laughs> go figure, they used the opportunity to preach the gospel. It was there that they again referenced the last days when they said, The times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus the Messiah. Peter and John were booked into jail because they were preaching on the resurrection from the dead. Not everybody agreed with that. Early believers in Jesus were initially convinced that he was going to return and establish his kingdom on the earth within their lifetime. They believed this was going to be accompanied by the judgment of all humans and the resurrection of the dead. The Hebrew fall feasts of Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and Sukkot are all high holy days associated with the last days, preparing people to meet the God that the apostles spoke so much about. These forward-looking holidays celebrate God's final judgment and atonement the blowing of the trumpet or the shofar, the ingathering of His saints, and the Messiah dwelling on the earth amongst His people. How meaningful these high holy days, which all take place in the fall, were to those who were living in Jerusalem and the surrounding area just after Jesus ascended. They personally knew the apostles who told them that according to the angels that were present that day, that Jesus will descend from heaven in the same manner that He ascended Sukkot was one of the three annual mandatory pilgrimages that God commanded was to be made. You know, you can imagine the early believers looking towards the Mount of Olives as they approached Jerusalem, wondering if they would see Jesus returning there soon, especially as these end times forward-looking holidays were just right around the corner after uh, Pentecost earlier that summer. Did they think that he was going to come back during those holidays then? I am almost positive that they did. Because of the deeply polarized religious and philosophical divisions already in existence within Judaism at Pentecost, the new Christian sect of Judaism started off already divided within itself. Whereas the ecclesia was and forever will be undivided, you know, the invisible organization of Jesus, the church had been born as at least quadruplets. <laughs> it's an inaccurate oversimplification to understand the new sect as a homogeneous group of Jesus-believing Jews. All the Jews who came to believe in Jesus as the Messiah decided what that meant to them after filtering their new belief through their own pre-existing religious worldviews. There were now Jesus-believing Pharisaical Jews, those who fit their belief in Jesus into closely following the Torah and the traditions of the rabbis. Then there were Jesus-believing Zealot Jews, those who counted on Jesus' immediate return to overthrow the secular government. There were the Sadducees who rejected rabbinical teaching. They fit Jesus into a framework of only accepting What was written in the Torah and not the rest of the Old Testament. The first main division amongst believers was over what to do with Gentiles who came to believe in Jesus as their Savior. Jesus, after all, was the Jewish Messiah that was foretold of in the Tanakh. When he returned, it'll be to establish a very Jewish kingdom on the earth that the prophets had written about. Yes, Jesus was also the Savior of the Gentiles, but what did that mean for them regarding what the Gentiles had to do to be saved? Luke informs us that there were many thousands of Jesus-believing Jews in Jerusalem that were zealous for the Torah or the law. These were Jews who were under the direct influence of the apostles of Jesus, including James, the brother of Jesus. However, Even though they believed in Jesus and were zealous for keeping the law and had direct access to the apostles of Jesus, they were not at all in agreement as to what to do with the Gentile converts. There were two main schools of thought. One group appears to have been on the same page with Paul, James, and Peter, that the gospel meant the same thing for both Jews and Gentiles. Belief and reliance upon Jesus nets eternal life. However, this did not mean for the Jews that they were required to lose their identity as God's chosen people, and it did not mean that Gentiles were required to take on that identity. Gentiles were under no obligation to be circumcised, keep Jewish laws, or to live like the Jews. The other group of Jewish Jesus believers who came to be known as Judaizers based their beliefs on what Gentiles must do within historical Judaism. They believed that for Gentiles to be accepted into their belief system, which they recognized Jesus to be the Messiah of, that they needed to be circumcised and follow the Torah, the law. At first, they had no reason to believe otherwise. Just because they had found their Messiah in Jesus and received the good news that the belief in Him was their only basis for salvation, for them, it was still in the context of being Jewish. It fit into their pre-existing religion. I don't believe this group of believers were necessarily wrong in their thoughts regarding being a Jesus-believing Jew. However, they were clearly wrong with their ideas regarding how Gentiles fit in. In the book of Acts, we read that there were some men living amongst the apostles who took it on themselves to go out and spread wrong ideas amongst the Gentiles living in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. This brought about a response from the apostles, elders, and brethren living in and around Jerusalem. Uh, The following that I'm going to read here was sent in a letter to the Gentiles. Here we go. Uh, This is found in Acts chapter 15, verses 24, verse 24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, You must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. Whoever it was spreading false ideas amongst the Gentiles, they were clearly a part of the apostles' group back home in Jerusalem. The letter says that they were sent out from us, or out from the apostles. They believed that both Jew and Gentile needed to follow the law and all that it entailed, like circumcision. The Judaizers that the Apostle Paul had a conflict with in Galatia also fit that profile. These believers in Jesus, their Messiah, may have been doing fine back home growing in the knowledge of Jesus within their Jewish framework, but they did not have a clear understanding, at least yet, Of the gospel as it pertains to the Gentiles. It appears that the Jews attempting to convince the Gentile believers in Galatia to become circumcised should have known better. Because they should have known better, Paul says that they should be accursed. He goes on and calls other Jews who taught the same thing false brethren. These were early examples of wolves in sheep's clothing. At least one sect of Christian Jews who believed that all must continue to follow the law, in addition to believing in Jesus, eventually became known as the Ebionites. The word Ebion in Hebrew means poor. Interestingly, this is a title that the Jewish Essene sect also accepted for themselves. Also of note is that the way of life the Essenes was known for was called The Way. Now, it may just be a coincidence, but The Way... Is what the believers of the in the Jesus movement were called prior to being known as Christians well although scripture points out growing pains amidst the new gentile believers in Jesus and the Christian sect of Judaism early on they were clearly allies and considered one another brothers and sisters in Christ for example the ecclesias in corinth in galatia which were gentile locations took up collections for their jewish brothers and sisters in jerusalem at the request of the apostle paul there was no persecution of note either way between the gentile believers and the jewish believers in jesus for now or then persecution of christian jews came only at the hands of other traditional Jewish sects that didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, and in fact were increasingly bitter than anybody was saying so. By the time Jesus walked the earth, the majority of the Jews, you know, including the ten northern tribes of Israel, had been captured, subjugated, and dispersed into foreign lands for centuries Gentiles in the Roman world were used to living side by side with the Jews because of this dispersion of Jews throughout the world. The consequence of living like that for the Jews was compromise. Many who had moved into the lands of the pagans could not help but be affected by the Greek culture that had permeated the Roman world. Most Jews, in varying degrees, had been Hellenized. By the end of the first century, The Gentile church had started differentiating between Jewish Christians who expected Gentiles to keep the law and those who did not. Regarding those Jewish Christians who did not expect Gentiles to observe the law, Justin Martyr wrote this, I declare that we must fully receive such and have communion with them in all respects as being one family and brothers. So, Justin Martyr, you know, the second century uh, church father, um, believed that the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers in Jesus should all be acting towards each other as though they are from one family. But this is such an indication, though, that so early on, they weren't acting as though there were. There was division. The relationship with the Gentile church changed drastically from the end of the first century through the fifth century. Eventually, Gentile Christianity played a leading role in eradicating Christian Judaism. For the most part, this was because the church fathers saw the Old Testament as not applying to the Church of the New Covenant. Some of the earliest records of this attitude came from the quill of Ignatius of Antioch, around 110 to 117 AD. Let me read to you what he wrote. Lay aside, therefore, the evil, the old, the sour leaven, and be changed into the new leaven, which is Jesus Christ. It's absurd to profess Christ Jesus and to Judaize, for Christianity did not embrace Judaism, but Judaism Christianity you're right, as though Christianity was this pre-existing religion that Jews converted to. Uh-uh. The Gentile church fathers saw the Jewish Christians as attempting to mix the old covenant with the new and believed the two could not exist together. You know, you can't put new wine into old wineskins. Therefore, the religion of the Jewish Christians was reduced to just another heresy that the Gentile church sought to stamp out. With the polarization of Judaism and Christianity came the Christianizing of components of Judaism that Christians wanted to hang on to, you know, picking and choosing, uh, cherry picking what they wanted to keep in Christianity, like reducing the Passover Seder to a token ceremony often performed during church that we call communion, or the Eucharist. Another popular Jewish doctrine that church leaders still cling to is the giving of tithes. This is but another square Jewish peg being hammered into a round Gentile hole. Nazarene Jews, Pharisees, and Sadducees all held several things in common. None of them were fans of Roman rule. The temple in Jerusalem was one of the other few common denominators amongst various sects of Jews in the first century, including the Christian sect of Jews. When it was destroyed by the Romans, that common denominator was also destroyed. It was one less bond between them. No longer having the temple, access to a high priesthood, or the ability to sacrifice and make atonement for their sins, Judaism slowly converted to a rabbinical system, uh, like the Babylonian exile, what took place then. The Christian Jews did not share this transition with the rest of them. They had no reason for making atonement for their sin any longer uh, since Jesus did what he did. During the same week Jesus was crucified, he warned his disciples that the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed and what signs will indicate the destruction was imminent, and what to do when this was about to happen. Some of the Jewish Christians apparently took Jesus' advice seriously. When they saw Vespians' armies surrounding them, they fled Jerusalem. Several historical sources indicate that they fled, at least temporarily, to the city of Pella, in what's now a northwestern Jordan town. To the Jews who remained in Jerusalem... This was the final point of separation from the Messianic Jews, who there was no reconciliation with any longer. From then on, the Messianic Jews were considered menim, or heretics. By the end of the first century, it's estimated that five to six million Jews lived outside the area of Palestine, and that somewhere between 10 to 15 percent of the population in the Mediterranean cities were made up of Jews. After the destruction of the temple, as many returned, there was a strong Jewish presence in Jerusalem. That is, up until the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132 to 136 AD. It was only the religious officials who'd been previously banished from Jerusalem as of AD 70. Well, after the Bar Kokhba rebellion, all Jews were expelled and a new Roman city, Elia Capitolina, was built upon the rubble of Jerusalem. For those who had moved on, if there were synagogues in the cities they moved to, they usually integrated into them if they were allowed to. By this time, there were both Jewish Christian and non-Christian or rabbinical Jewish synagogues that were in existence. By the early 60s AD, Jews living in and around Rome had already become very opposed to the type of faith proposed by the Apostle Paul. What he taught contributed to Messianic Jews being seen as outsiders. The final formal divorce of the what was thought of as heretical Jewish Christian sect from the other Orthodox Jewish religion came in the form of a malediction or a uh, magical pronouncement called the Berkat Hamanim. This pronouncement was added to the central prayer of the Jewish liturgy called the Shemone Esra observant Jews recite this prayer 3 times a day here's the traditional rendering of this prayer it goes like this may the apostates have no hope unless they return to thy torah and may the nazarenes and the manim or sectarians disappear in a moment may they be erased from the book of life and not be inscribed with the righteous <laughs> Not that those who were Jewish Jesus followers necessarily accepted the verdict, but according to the teachings of the rabbis, there was no longer any place in Judaism for the Jewish-Christian hybrid. Prior to this time, those belonging to traditional Jewish sects treated the Christian Jews as heretics or apostate, but still recognized them as Jews. Now, the beliefs of the Jewish Christians placed them outside the boundaries of the Jewish community. Writings within Judaism relating to Jesus appear to have become widespread. The canon of rabbinical teachings became tightly controlled because of that, and the books of the Christian Jews, when discovered, were burned. By the end of the 2nd century, Some church fathers, such as Origen and Hippolytus, had begun to lump all Jews who believed in Jesus together, calling them Ebionites. Others divided them up into Ebionites, Nazarenes, and Elkisites. The Ebionites were first mentioned by Bishop Irenaeus of Lyons, France, in the mid to late first century. Some believe them to be the successors to the community coming out of Jerusalem that Paul dealt with. These are those referred to in the New Testament as Judaizers. They observed the Sabbath, practiced circumcision, and were careful to avoid physical contact with pagans, (laughs) the Gentiles. They also took part in communion, but only once a year, and they used unleavened bread and water. This was a departure from the Jewish celebration of the Passover. In his book Against Heresies, Arrhenius wrote this about the Ebionites. Those who are called the Ebionites agree that the world was made by God. They use the gospel according to Matthew only and repudiate the apostle Paul, maintaining that he was an apostate to the law. They practice circumcision, persevere in those customs which are enjoined by the observance of the law, and are so Judaic in their style of life that they even adore Jerusalem as if it were the house of God. Some scholars say that there's very little difference between the different Christian Jewish sects. It's not without controversy, but other scholars see the Jewish-Christian sect of the Nazarenes as being those who continued in the Apostles' doctrine. Church father Epiphanius of Salome didn't think so. He listed them amongst those who were heretics in the 4th century. 4th century theologian and Bible translator, on the other hand, Jerome, wrote the following about the beliefs of the Nazarenes, which is very informative. He says, they, you know, the Nazarenes, believe that Christ, the Son of God, was born of the Virgin Mary, and they hold him to be one who suffered under Pontius Pilate and ascended to heaven, and in whom we also believe. But while they pretend to be both Jews and Christians, they are neither. But Jerome doesn't explain exactly why they are neither. But in his letter to Augustine of Hippo in 404 AD, he he was expressing a worry about allowing Jews like the Nazarenes to be received into the church his worry is expressed in what i just read and it reflects his fear of falling into heresy of the same type that resulted in others being anathematized by the fathers or put out of or uh, yeah put out of the church by the church fathers what was this heresy that they were worried about well it wasn't that their core beliefs regarding jesus weren't the same It was that they were attempting to live according to the new faith without letting go of the old jewish religious practices jerome wrote this if in short it shall be declared lawful for them the jews to continue in the churches of christ what they have been accustomed to practice in the synagogues of satan i will tell you my opinion of the matter they will not become christians but they will make us jews The Nazarenes appeared to believe the same things about Jesus as the Orthodox Church of the 4th and the early 5th century, but because they continued to also hold to Jewish traditions, just like the original apostles of Jesus did, there was no room for them within the new church. Christians had now completely separated themselves from anyone claiming to be Jewish, whether they also believed in the gospel of Jesus or not. In the 4th century AD, you know, the 300s, a guy named John Chrysostom, the Archbishop of Constantinople, absolved Pontius Pilate and vicariously the Romans for the murder of Jesus. He blamed Jesus's death instead solely on the Jews. This at least partially had to do with Rome by this time embracing Christianity as its own. Chrysostom likely did not want to offend the new Roman friends of Christianity. If his writing reflects his heart, Chrysostom appears to have hated the Jews, referring to them as pitiful and miserable. He referred to their holidays, like, you know, the ones that Yahweh, the Most High God, commanded to be forever observed by them as a disease, and he despises the synagogues of the Jews. His writings are fuel for anti-Semitics to this day. It's hard to believe this man was venerated as a saint in numerous Orthodox churches when his writings could more appropriately be found in Hitler's Mein Kampf. By Christostom's day in the mid-300s, the Jews and the Christians had both completely disowned those Jews who believed in Jesus as the Messiah rather than gentiles being thought of as being grafted into a completely jewish tree the jewish tree was thought of as being cut down and rejected by god when things are thought of as opposite of what they are in reality reality being god's point of view it reeks of evil well in conclusion Although they had come to believe in Jesus as their Savior and Messiah, the earliest followers of Jesus continued to be Jews, both ethnically and religiously. They were not converts, but had recognized and accepted Jesus as the Jewish Messiah that they were waiting for. They looked at the Old Testament and the law in a new light, that Jesus was the fulfillment of what the Old Testament was all about. Jews were not the only monotheists of the first century. They could also be found amongst the Hellenistic philosophers. But because of their unique history and culture, when a monotheistic Jew came to believe in Jesus, they already possessed much of the background information necessary to have a more informed belief than the Gentiles did. This allowed the new Jewish Messiah followers to believe and be baptized relatively very quickly. Well, there are many traditions and practices within Judaism, such as participation in the holy days, which symbolize the richness of the gospel. Like reading the Old Testament or traveling to Israel, there's much for any follower of Jesus to learn from ancient Jewish traditions and practices. There is no indication in Scripture that Jewish people were instructed to give up their Jewish traditions as a result of their their I'm saying that purposefully, their Messiah's first coming. Of course, he is ours, the Gentile believer's Messiah also, but it is their scripture that predicted his coming and is first and foremost their Messiah. Jewish Christianity continued for centuries in different forms. One early sect of Jewish Jesus followers came to be known as the Nazarenes. They were first persecuted by the Pharisees, a Jewish sect which Saul, later the Apostle Paul, was a member of. Eventually, the church persecuted the Jewish Christians who continued to hold to Jewish religious practices. They believed that the Jews had been rejected and replaced by the church. For several years, The Christian Jews continued to make annual pilgrimages to Jerusalem as they were able to to and had the opportunity to learn more from the apostles of Jesus who remained there. I think it's really important to understand or for me to point out how some will believe that this is because the church evolved over the years. They came to a a deeper understanding of what it meant to be a Christian. And so they put away with the old, put away the old ways. You know, they got rid of the old, old wine in the old wine skins and replaced it with new wine in new wine skins. And this took like several hundred years for them to come to this understanding. I'm, I'm arguing here that that is not the case at all. Uh, it was simply an us versus them that it, that came into existence. The gospel was introduced and accepted into many different frameworks, sects of Judaism, so it should be no surprise that varying practices and beliefs surrounding the Messiah were followed from very early on. At first, there was no uniform set of practices or traditions on how Jesus believers were supposed to come together and worship. Only an organic response to the gospel within their existing Jewish frameworks. Of course, those of us who come to believe now aren't, aren't don't come to the faith within that kind of framework. But they did then, and there was nothing wrong with it. And like I've said a few times now, the Christians and the Jews, whether they're Christian Jews or, or just Orthodox Jews have different roles in the story that God is telling. Intertwined roles, but nevertheless different roles. Jesus believers, in the very beginning, sought one another out. Once they found each other, motivated by God-given love, they took care of one another's needs. The more mature and experienced believers taught the, the newer, less experienced believers local gatherings of Jesus' followers became closer than natural biological families. And those, of course, like we've talked about as we went through Scripture, are the core principles that were taught by Jesus and his apostles regarding why and what it is that a local group of called out ones should be doing when they come together. And I want to interject here that that was not easy. They didn't have buildings on corners that uh, one could expect to walk into and find a bunch of legitimate, authentic believers in Jesus. They had to seek out each other individually. Maybe there was no one else in your town uh, for years. Um, Then they had to go to the next town over to find somebody who believed in Jesus. It was work to find other ones. And so when people say, yeah, but what if we didn't have these, these churches on uh, every church corner? How would, we, how would we ever worship together? Well, <laughs> how did they do it in the very beginning? They found other like-minded, authentic believers in Jesus, and they fellowshipped with them. There is absolutely nothing saying that it should be any easier for us today. What's most remarkable, and has got to be kept in mind as we continue through the history of what's influenced the man-made institution that we're calling the church, is that from the very beginning, people that sat directly under the apostles of Jesus, who perhaps were present at the day of the Pentecost event, got so quickly off track to the point where they were considered heretics. Some were even being cursed by Paul. By the time we reached the 4th century, there wasn't even any room within the church for the original practices of the original apostles of Jesus. That's got to serve as a strong caution as we consider what happened in the next 225 years. And that is what we're going to talk about next time as we add Gentiles into the mix of following Jesus. But until then, I hope that God richly blesses you. I wish you shalom and maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at at Doug H Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at dughooley.com. Or email me at doug at That's doug at d-o-u-g-h-o-o-l-e-y y.com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless.